and that's our podcast that we use. And so uh, this morning, we're going to continue in the study within the study, right? So over the last few weeks, we've been studying Romans and over just the last two weeks, we've been studying Romans chapter, chapters 9 and 10, leading into 11. So it is a study within a study, and it's written specifically for the nation of Israel. How many remember that this is about the nation of Israel? 9, 10, and 11 is written about the nation of Israel, of Romans. So before we get started, let's go before the Lord in prayer concerning the Word. Lord, we come before you. It's, it's been a weird morning, Lord. We've had the the worship outside and the praise outside. Lord, I thank you for a a good morning. Lord, I thank you for a time to just come and experience your presence and your glory. Lord, I pray that your presence would fill this place. Lord, as we we experience your word, Lord, what it is you've laid upon my heart, Lord, the words that you're speaking through me, Lord, I pray that there would be ears to hear. Lord, I pray this morning as we take communion together, as we fellowship together, that we would just feel your glory and your presence in this place. Lord, we thank you and praise you for it. In Jesus' name, amen. We know over the last few weeks, if you've been with us, Romans 9, 10, and 11 are specifically written to Israel. They are the countrymen of Paul. His portion, his writing of this portion of the letter of Romans is not just to gush about his love for Israel. How many, how many old people, I'm just kidding, how many people love America? Come on. I, no, oh no. Are you Canadian? No? Okay. How many people love America? I, I love this country, right? Paul isn't writing this, this letter just because he loves his country. He's not writing this letter just because he loves his countrymen. He's writing this letter. Uh, he, he wants to make them and, and us. It's not just a letter written for them. It's a letter written for us. Amen? It's a letter written for them and us to make us aware of God's plan for Israel. Israel is God's chosen people. Israel has profound importance throughout human history and in the future. Now we're going to get into it, so there's always been questions about what's going to happen with Israel, or what, what does the Bible say is going to happen with Israel. There is a problem with Israel at this point in time. There's a problem with Israel at this point in time, by the way. The problem is that they have denied Christ. Not all of them, but most of them have denied Christ. Last week we saw Paul let them know that not everybody who is of the seed of Abraham was part of Israel. Last week in chapter 10, we looked and said, not everybody of the seed of Abraham is part of Israel. Being a part of Israel was dependent upon faith. Israel was dependent upon the law. We've talked about this the last few weeks, about how dependent they were upon the law. Non-Jews or Gentiles, as the Bible calls them, were putting faith in Christ where Israel was not. They were putting faith in Christ where Israel was not. The end of chapter 10 showed us the prophetic way that this happened as it was written by the prophet Isaiah. And it said this. Go to the first slide there. It said this, the end of Romans chapter 10. But Isaiah is very bold and says, I was found by those who did not seek me. I was made manifest to those who did not ask for me. That's in reference to the Gentiles. But to Israel, he says, all day long I have stretched out my hands to a disobedient 
and contrary people. All day long, he has stretched his hands out to a disobedient and contrary people. How many know some people who are disobedient and contrary? Gary, you know anyone like that? Oh, Gary just pointed at himself. Right, Rhonda? Rhonda thought she pointed at him, but he was pointing at himself. I told you last week about how interesting it was that God refers to Israel as a disobedient and contrary people. They've had the prophets and they've had the teachers. They've been, they've been led by God and the law. They've had every opportunity. Every opportunity. God says that he stretches hands out to them all day long. But still, they refuse. They still refuse Christ. And so what does this mean? Does this mean that Israel is lost? Thank you, Mary. (laughs) Does this mean Israel is lost? The major theme in this chapter is that question. Is Israel lost? Another question that comes up is this. Why should it matter to us today? Why should the state of Israel matter to us today? I grew up in a uh, Bible-believing church. And I remember that when I was a young kid, when I was a young boy, I was uh, I, I was told of the importance of Israel in the end times. How many, how many grew up in church or grew up hearing about the importance of Israel? The importance of Israel, but, but still, why are they so important? And will they be, be important later? Why were they so important then? Will they be important later? Before we get to that, let's look at the question of God's plan for Israel. It says this, all day long God has stretched out His hands, but they are a disobedient and contrary people. So what happens next? Go to to 11 verse 1. I say then, has God cast away His people? Certainly not. For I am also an Israelite of the seed of Abraham, of the tribe of Benjamin. We, fee- we see first that God is not done with the nation of Israel. He's not done with the nation. He has not cast away his people. Paul shows that he is proof of that. Paul says, I'm an Israelite of the seed of Abraham, of the tribe of Benjamin. There is a certain pride in that for Paul. He says, hey, look, I'm an Israelite and, and I'm not cast away. I'm proof of this. Verse 2 says this. Go to the next slide. God has not cast away his people whom he foreknew. Or do you not know what the scripture says of Elijah? So he uses Elijah as the example here. How he pleads with God against Israel saying, Lord, they have killed your prophets and torn down your altars. And I alone am left and they seek my life. Paul uses uh, the reference to Elijah. How many know what he's talking about when it comes to Elijah? Anybody? About the time in his life. It comes to a time in his life where Elijah is just fed up. Elijah is fed up. He's being pursued. Actually, he just had this great victory with the prophets of Baal at Mount Carmel. But then he goes and he just says, Lord! Can't you just wipe him out? I mean, he just gets, he gets fed up with these people who are disobedient and contrary. Lord, they have killed your prophets and torn down your altars. I alone am left. 
I'm it. How many ever felt like you were just alone in your faith? How many ever felt like you were just alone and there's nobody left? Lord, why don't you just wipe the rest of these people out? Come on. I felt that. Right, John? I felt that. I'm not going to say I felt that about any of you. But there's times where you just get frustrated. Elijah here is frustrated. Lord, they've killed your prophets, torn down your altars. I alone am left. I'm it. And they seek my life. They seek my life. It's interesting here. Paul says he believed, Elijah believed he was the only one left that was faithful. But God spoke a specific truth to him that let him know he wasn't alone in his faith. It says this. Go to the next slide. But what does the divine response say to him? That's What does God's response say to him? I have reserved for myself 7,000 men who have not bowed their knee to Baal. Baal was a false god. It was a demonic uh, entity. Even so then, at this present time, there is a remnant according to the election of grace. And if by grace, then it is no longer of works, Otherwise, grace is no longer grace. But if it is of works, it is no longer grace. Otherwise, work is no longer work. We've talked about this the last few weeks, about what it is. There's 7,000 people who haven't bowed their knee to Baal. There was a remnant. We talked about the election. What does it mean to be elect or predestined? That it is by our own free will and only by the grace of God that God in His foreknowledge sees our choice in accepting Christ. They are elect just as we are the elect, but it's by our own free will. It is only by the grace of God. Understand? Verse 7 says this. Verse 7 says, What then? Israel has not obtained what it seeks, but the elect have obtained it, and the rest were blinded. Just as it is written, God has given them a spirit of stupor, eyes that they should not see and ears that they should not hear to this very day. Go to the next uh, slide. It continues. And David said, Let their table become a snare and a trap, a stumbling block and a recompense to them. Let their eyes be darkened so that they do not see and bow down their back always. When I was a young man, I was uh, 16 years old. And I was, and I don't know, how many, is anybody 16 in here? Uh, 15? 16, 17, 18? Amy. <laughs> when I was, how many are, anybody close to 15, 16, 17? Any, no, man kids? How old are you, Ashley? You're 16. I don't know about you. Okay, so when I was 16 years old, this is the stuff I thought about. What is, Ashley, I don't want to pick any. I don't want to put you on the spot. What are some things you think about? I know that's a big, that's a loaded question, right? You think about like uh, school and what you're going to do in the future and all those things, right? Think about going to work because you work where? She is one of the quality employees, one of the few quality employees at McDonald's. Uh, amen. <laughs> She's really good. She she serves food hot and fast, right? When I was 16, I don't. How many knew the stuff that you thought about when you were 16? Jonathan Mann. What are you smiling for, man? When you were 16, how old are you now? 
23. Can you can you think back to when you were 16? Yeah. What are some of the things that were on your mind? Uh, license. Driver's license, right? How many were excited to get your driver's? At 16, you get your driver's license. How many get them now earlier? They get some some kids get them at like 14. That's the permit. Blake, how old are you? Three years away from your permit, buddy. Oh boy. <laughs> He needs to drive. When I was 16 years old, there was a lot of things that were going through my head. One of the things that was going through my head when I was 16 years old, I promise you this is just kind of the way it was, I was really trying to wrestle with the understanding of how the Jewish people could not see that Christ was the Messiah. At 16 years old, I was just like, man, this is, this is bothering me. How come the Jewish people can't understand that Christ is the Messiah? There's also other, plenty of other things running through my head at 16. But this was, a, this was a big one in my life. It bothered me because growing up, I was really into what's called apologetics. How many know what apologetics is? Apologetics, in case you don't know, it's a fancy way of saying that they were reasonable and understandable arguments for why the Bible is true. There are reasonable and understandable arguments for what makes the Bible True. It's called apologetics. And so I was really into apologetics. And the thing that got me was this. There is statistical data for Christ being the Messiah. That's what really got me. There's statistical data for the Christ being the Messiah. If you look at the number of prophecies, listen to this, it's very interesting. If you look at the number of prophecies that point to the Messiah in the Old Testament, there were specific points... There were specific things that would point towards who he was. Statistical data. In fact, there are 61 prophecies. Messianic prophecies. So here's what happened. A statistics professor calculated the odds of one person fulfilling just eight of those, eight of those prophecies. Just one person fulfilling just eight. Do you want to know what the odds are? The odds are of one person fulfilling just eight of the 61 prophecies is one in 10 to the 17th power. Now, that is a one with 17 zeros behind it. In fact, the number is this. It's one in 100 quadrillion. One in 100 quadrillion. Statistically speaking, it would be no happenstance. It would be no fluke for someone to fulfill those requirements, but it had to be divinely inspired. It had to be divinely... And that's just eight prophecies. Just eight. Here's what got me. Jesus didn't fulfill just eight prophecies. He fulfilled all of them. The statistics were astounding. There was absolutely no question that He was the Messiah That was prophesied. And so this confused me. How could the Jewish people not see this? How could they reject Christ? And then I read Romans chapter 11. God has given them, go back to the first slide there, or just one before. God has given them a spirit of stupor. Eyes that they should not see and ears that they should not hear to this very day. One version says that Israel was hardened. 
We talked about what this means a few weeks ago, that Israel was hardened. Keep in mind, listen to this, it was not God keeping them from salvation. This was not God. This was because of their own disobedience. This wasn't God just arbitrarily saying, yep, you're going to be blinded and you just, you're not going to be able to accept Christ. No, no, no. This was because of their own disobedience. And because of their own disobedience, God gave them over to the spirit of stupor. Eyes that they should not see and ears that they should not hear to this very day. I like what this commentary says. It says this. The hardening of here, the hardening here is not by some arbitrary decree. Rather, Israel has been hardened by God because of their disobedience. The hardening is also not without a purpose. Through it, the Gentiles have been shown mercy. Importantly for Israel, the hardening is not a permanent condition. Salvation is available for them too. They have not stumbled beyond recovery. How many are glad to know that when we disobey and stumble, we are not beyond recovery? I, that, that's, that's good news for me this morning. Amen? How many know that when we, when we mess up, we stumble, we trip up, there's a lot of times where the enemy will say, you are not worthy for the love of the Father. When we mess up and trip up, you, you are not worthy to come to church. You're not worthy to serve. You're not worthy to do these things. And, and, and listen, remember, we talked about this just a couple weeks ago. The Lord is not condemning you. The Holy Spirit is convicting you to bring you back to righteousness. Amen? We are not beyond recovery. Verse 11 says this. I say then, have they stumbled that they should fall? Certainly not. But through their fall, to provoke them to jealousy, salvation has come to the Gentiles. This is interesting. Now, if their fall is riches for the world and their failure riches for the Gentiles, how much more their fullness? Now you say, I don't know what all that means. That's okay. It shows the faithfulness of God. Their disobedience was sin, but God used it for good so that salvation would come to the Gentiles. I like what this commentary says. It says, it wasn't that the Jewish rejection of Jesus caused the Gentiles to be saved. It wasn't that because the Jews rejected Jesus as Messiah, now the Gentiles can be saved. That's not what it was. What it did was it merely gave an opportunity for the gospel to go to the Gentiles. Israel wasn't listening. Israel's not listening. They've closed their ears to the gospel. And so now they're preaching to the Gentiles. And the Gentiles are accepting Christ in droves. The numbers are astounding. It gave the opportunity for the gospel and the Gentiles, they took advantage of it. Man, now Gentiles are being saved. As this says this in verse 13. For I speak to you Gentiles inasmuch as I am an apostle to the Gentiles. That's how Paul referred to himself. He says, I magnify my ministry. If by any means I may provoke to jealousy those who are my flesh and save some of them. In preaching to the Gentiles, Paul says, I'm a preacher to the Gentiles, but I hope that my preaching will cause some Jewish people to get saved. For if their being cast away is the reconciling of the world, 
What will their acceptance be but life from the dead? Paul says, man, I, I just, I hope to just kind of poke them. I hope to prod them a bit to salvation. He starts to shift his message now for 9, 10, and 11. He's, his, this message has been generally geared towards Israel. And now he starts to shift his message back towards the Gentiles. And he shares with us some incredible truths here. Verse 16 says this. This is a, this is a large uh, chunk, but let's get through it. For if the first fruit is holy, the lump is also holy. Now, the first fruit there, we're going to learn what that means. Because some people would say, well, that's Christ. Christ is not being refer- referenced here as far as the first fruit. So we're going to get into what that means in just a second. So if the first fruit is holy, the lump is also holy. And if the root is holy, so are the branches. The root here is not speaking about God. We're going to talk about what that means in a second too. And if some of the branches were broken off and you, being a wild olive tree, were grafted in among them and with them become a partaker of the root and the fatness of the olive tree, do not boast against the branches. But if you do boast, remember that you do not support the root, but the root supports you. You don't, you don't support the root, the root supports you. You will say then, branches were broken off that I might be grafted in. Well said. Because of unbelief, they were broken off, and you stand by faith. Do not be haughty, but fear. For if God did not spare the natural branches, he may not spare you either. If God did not spare the natural branches, the first fruit spoken of here, the first fruit, what is that? If the first fruit is holy, the lump is also holy. The first fruit is really in reference to the first Christians, the core group of believers. These people that came together, what we would call the patriarchs. The people that came together, the Pauls and the Peters and the James and the Johns, right? This core group of believers, they are the first fruit spoken of here. Paul tells us that when we accept Christ and we become a Christian then, we are grafted into the root. Now, what is the root? Anybody? The root is Israel. The root is the Jewish people. The root, uh, speaking about this here, it says this. We are grafted into, or adopted into, later on it speaks of being adopted into the faith of Abraham. We are grafted into the root. If the root is holy, so are the branches. And if the branches were broken off, and you being a wild olive tree, were grafted in among them, and with them become a partaker of the root. We become partakers of the covenant that Israel had with God. Israel is God's chosen people, and now we become part of the root and become a part of Israel. This means that, that we have become a part. How many, I once heard somebody say this. How many people in this room are Jewish? And just one or two people raised their hand. And then the teacher raised her hand, and she was African American. So I was confused. And she said, don't you understand that if you are a Christian, if you are, if you are grafted into the faith of Abraham, we are all Jewish. We are all part of the nation of Israel. This means that we become part of the blessings 
that come with that. We become part of the covenants that come with that. He also says this. He says, don't get big headed. Don't get big headed about it because it's not us supporting the root. It's Israel supporting us. It's the root supporting us. Pastor Jack Hayford said it this way. I like this. You would be wise then as a Gentile believer to note that your root system comes from the Jews. It would be both foolish and mindless not to acknowledge that there is an accountability in that relationship that holds you dutiful to care, to pray for, and to support them. Not because of their perfection any more than God has loved you or me because of our perfection, but because it's a divine order of things. If our root system is of the Jewish people and we are grafted into the root system, what does that make us? Anybody? Jewish. If we are part of that root system, we're grafted in. It makes us Jewish by faith. It makes us part of the nation of Israel by faith. The Jewish Talmud said that Ruth was grafted into the nation of Israel. And likewise, so are we. That we are grafted in. The answer to why Israel matters to us today is that we are a part of Israel. Why should Israel matter to us today? Because we are part of Israel. John, uh, Jesus said in John chapter 4, words of Jesus, salvation is for the Jews. Now, I have to tell you, this has been a teaching that is not just, it's true, but it's controversial. Because a lot of people grew up with a bad view of Jewish people. By culture, by bias. There's been all sorts of... uh, I know a lot of people that grew up with a very bad view of Jewish people. How many know what I'm talking about? There's been how many, how many there's there's jokes, derogatory language that's used about Jewish people. Now, Jewish people for the most part can take a joke. They've been taking everything else for for a long time. And so they've been taking they can take a joke. Bobby knows what I'm saying. They can take a joke, and so a lot of like comics and and media personality, Jewish people that make jokes and that that's fine. But there's all sorts of jokes and derogatory language that's used about Jewish people. I still remember my, uh, my, it was my grandmother would say things that, about Jewish people. My grandma would say, say things about a lot of different people. And you look at it and people say, well, today that's not so acceptable, right? Today those things aren't so acceptable. More than just it being a cultural shift of what's acceptable and what's not, it should be an understanding that we, as Christians, are grafted into the faith of Abraham. We are adopted into his faith. Amen? Do we have an, I don't know if this has been taught a lot, but do we have an understanding that we are part of, we are partakers of the covenants? We should be aware that in reality, we are a part of Israel, and therefore we could be rightly defined as Jewish people. We could be rightly defined as Jewish people. You say, Pastor David, hold on a second. Jews don't believe in Jesus. Pastor David, Jewish people don't believe in Jesus. And that would be true for the most part. 
But about 70 years ago, something started to happen. 70 years ago, something actually pretty significant started to happen, and that Jewish people started to open up to Christ. Over the last 15 to 20 years, the numbers have grown. This is what Jack Hayford has said, the statistics. Today there are more than 300,000 Jewish people who have faith in Christ. There are more than 300,000 Jewish people. It's a significant and biblical thing for us to stand with Israel. It's a significant and biblical thing for us to stand with Israel because God has not cast them away. Slowly, the blinders are being taken off. And we'll soon see what will happen. For now, let's continue with some more of the truths that Paul is speaking here. Go to the next verse. Verse 22 says this, Therefore, consider the goodness and severity of God. Those sound like two opposite words. The goodness and severity of God. On those who fell, severity. But toward you, goodness, if you continue in His goodness. Otherwise, you also will be cut off. And they also, if they do not continue in unbelief, they will be grafted in. For God is able to graft them in again. God is talking about Israel. Those who, those who are part of Israel, as Jewish people, as the nation of Israel, if they do not believe in Christ, they have been cut off. But, there is a supernatural ability that God has to be able to graft them in again. It's amazing when people see this. For if you were cut out of the olive tree, which is wild by nature, and were grafted contrary to the nature into a cultivated olive tree, how much more will these who are natural branches, Jewish people, natural Jewish, we're talking about the actual nation of Israel right now, culturally Jewish people, who are the natural branches, be grafted into their own olive tree. I just spoke to you about the numbers of the Jewish people that are being grafted back in right now. It says this in verse 25. For I do not desire, brethren, that you should be ignorant of this mystery, lest you should be wise in your own opinion. How many have ever been wise in their own opinion? Uh, yeah. I've been wise in my own opinion. That blindness in part has happened to Israel until the fullness of the Gentiles has come in. Now this is pretty interesting. Until the fullness of the Gentiles that come in. When all the Gentiles come in. When there is a fullness of the Gentiles coming in. Then there will be a blindness. uh, The blindness that has happened will happen until the fullness of the Gentiles come in. And so all Israel will be saved. Now, Pastor David. Are we talking about. Israel, Israel? Are we talking about those who are part of Israel but not actually a part of Israel? Are we talking about only those who believe? Are we, what is it we're talking about here? It says this, the deliverer will come out of Zion and he will turn away ungodliness from Jacob. For this is my covenant with them when I take away their sins. The Bible says that all of Israel will be saved. 
It's worth noting, and you, there should always be a, a careful reminder of this, that they will not be saved apart from Christ. There will be no salvation apart from Christ. I like what one commentary says. It doesn't mean that there will be a time when every last person of Jewish descent will be saved. That's not what it's saying. Instead, this is a time when Israel as a whole will be a saved people. There is going to be a massive supernatural revival that happens within the nation of Israel and it will cause the nation of Israel to come back to Christ. When the nation as a whole, especially as leadership, embraces Jesus Christ as Messiah. The verse is in reference to Israel and what will happen in the future. It's prophetic. It's saying it's happening slowly now, but soon there is a floodgate that will open. Soon there is a floodgate that will open with Jewish people recognizing and accepting Christ as their Savior. It can't be overstated that they are God's chosen people and we have a divine instruction to stand for Israel. Amen? I like what this commentary says. It says, the Bible indicates that this is a necessary condition for the return of Christ. That this is a necessary condition for the return of Christ. Matthew twenty-two thirty-nine, Zechariah 12, 10 through 11 says that. You say, Pastor David, I didn't catch those verses. It'll be on podcast, I promise. Jesus will not return again until God turns the focus of his saving mercies on Israel again, and Israel responds to God through Jesus Christ. It's conditions. Verse 28 says this. Concerning the gospel, now Paul is speaking to the Gentiles about the Jewish people. Concerning the gospel, they are enemies for your sake. When it comes to the gospel, the Jewish people have been your enemies, is what Paul is saying. But concerning the election, remember God's, God in his omniscience has seen what is going to happen. He has foreknowledge of what's going to happen. He has foreknowledge and sees when we will accept Christ of our own free will. Predestination election, right? God sees in his foreknowledge. So the, the sovereignty of God and the free will of man come together. For the gifts and the callings of God are irrevocable. Now, this is pretty interesting. The gifts and callings of God are irrevocable. I'm going to read the rest of the verse and then get back to that. For as you were once disobedient to God, he's speaking to the Gentiles, we have now obtained mercy through their disobedience, the, the disobedience of the Jews. Even the, so, these also have now been disobedient, that through the mercy shown to you, the mercy shown to the Gentiles, the Jews may also obtain mercy. For God has committed them all to disobedience that he might have mercy on them all. Paul is speaking to this mainly Gentile or non-Jewish audience and is stating that while the Jews may be against them now, it will not be that way forever. The Jews might be against them now, but it won't be that way forever. The gifts and the calling of God on Israel and on your life cannot be taken away. How many know that you have a calling on your life and God has given you gifts in your life? Just like God has a calling on Israel and and has given gifts to Israel, those callings and gifts, it says that they were 
it says it, where's, where's the verse? That they are irrevocable. Irrevocable. They can't be taken away. He says then, it's the same mercy we were shown in our disobedience that may save them. It says, He wants to have mercy on them all. He ends this chapter in speaking about the mystery of God. The mystery of God, it says this. Go to the next slide. Verse, uh, verse 33 to 36. Oh, the depth of the riches, both of the wisdom and knowledge of God. How unsearchable are his judgments and his ways are past finding out. For who has known the mind of the Lord? Who has become his counselor? How many ever tried to become counselor to God? How many have said, Lord, uh, I know you did it this way, but if it was me, I would do it this way. How many say, God is God, God. and I am not. not. Amen? Amen? For who has known the mind of the Lord, or who has become his counselor? Or who has given, who has first given to him, and it shall be repaid to him? For of him, and through him, and to him are all things. To whom be glory forever. Amen. How is all this going to happen? How is, how is the Jewish people going to be saved in this mighty revival? How is this going to happen? How is the nation of Israel going to come back? How, how is this mercy going to happen? We don't know. We just don't know. But God has seen and God knows. Amen? We can't begin to wrap our head around the ways of God. Are you kidding me? We can't begin to wrap our head around the ways of God. Here's what we can know. Here's, here's what we can know according to Scripture. That God has seen and knows. We also know that of Him and through Him and to Him are all things. And the greatness of God should make us worship Him even more. Amen? The glory and the goodness and the greatness of God should make us worship Him anymore. Because He is beyond us but yet He is deeply personal with us. Amen? That's this great mystery that Paul is talking about here. How is it this God that is so big and so great and so mighty can also speak to my heart? His eye is on the sparrow, right? I know He's watching over me. It's a great mystery. How unsearchable are his judgments? Sometimes we just can't know. It's this great mystery and it's this great treasure that we have. This is going to bring an end to our study for the study within a study, right? So we're in the book of Romans. We're going to continue into chapter 16 over the next few weeks. But this, these three chapters, 9, 10, 11, were written specifically about Israel. We talked a lot about uh, what it means to be Calvinists, Arminianists. We, we talked about a lot about all those different things. Because it's not just about... Uh, there's sometimes where it's preaching and sometimes where it's teaching. Amen? Some of the great truths that come out of these three chapters. There's three chapters and there's seven truths that come out of it. Uh, of the three chapters, go to the next slide. It says uh, these, these are the seven truths that we learned in 9, 10, and 11. First is this. God wants everyone to know who He is. Number two, anybody can be saved, right? 
Number three, grace is resistible. We have free will. We don't have to accept the gift of salvation. We should, but we don't always. Four, hardening of the heart. When God hardens somebody's heart, it's not arbitrary, but a punishment for transgression. Five, the accepted. I love this. Five, those who are part of the branch can be cut off. The accepted can become rejected. Here's what I love even more. The rejected can become accepted. Amen? And lastly, seven, God has mercy on all. Amen? Stand with me this morning. Jenny, if you could come up. Lord, I thank You for these three chapters, 9, 10, and 11. We've studied a lot of theology and we've studied a lot of the intricacies and things of that sort. But Lord, I thank You that Your Holy Presence has just been surrounding this sermon series. Lord, I thank You that we have ears to hear this morning. I pray that we would have eyes to see. Lord, I pray over each part of this message in moving forward. Lord, I pray that You would remind us of it during our week. Lord, I pray that You would remind us of it during our month. That we would listen to it again on podcast. That we would be refreshed by Your Word. Lord, I pray that it's an encouraging message. God has not given up on Israel. He's, he's not given up on you either. God has mercy on us all. God wants everyone to know who He is. The rejected can become accepted. Lord, I thank You that I was able to become accepted grafted into the faith of Abraham, grafted into the root. Lord, give us an understanding of Your promises and covenants. Give us an understanding of our spiritual heritage so that we may better understand our spiritual future. Lord, I thank You that as a church, as a a body, You have called us to stand for Israel. There's so many things happening just across the world that we have no idea about. God, that You would show mercy and grace and compassion. We thank You for it. In Jesus' name, Amen.